Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast covering documentary film. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer of the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, we discuss short documentaries. They've experienced a boom in recent years, and we're going to explore that bounty. My guest is Opal H. Bennett, documentary shorts programmer for the Doc NYC Festival, coming up November 8th to 15th. This year, Opal oversaw the selection of Doc NYC's short list of short documentaries, picking 12 of the strongest contenders for the Oscars and other awards. For years, Doc NYC has curated a short list for feature documentaries. This is the first year of giving shorts the same treatment. She joins me at the School of Visual Arts Social Documentary Department. Opal, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. So before we get to talking about specific films, I want to ask you about your background in festival programming, how you came into being the doyen of documentary shorts. <laughs> that's generous. Uh, that's actually the question that I get most often because I went to law school and had a career very different from this uh, when I first started out. Uh, so even I wonder sometimes the, 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 your mother did not raise you to be a documentary no, short programmer. And, and it took a while for her to even be able to answer the question of what it is that I do <laughs> since I started doing this work. Uh, the long and short answer is I just, I followed my passions. I was still working in law for, uh, a few years when I first started screening for Tribeca. Uh, and that led to screening for Hamptons and Nantucket Film Festival, I got hired as a staffer, a programming staff member at Montclair Film Festival, who, which you're familiar with. I know that well. <laughs> uh, and Tom Hall over there gave me my first break. And then my second job was with you and Basil here at Doc NYC. That led to Nantucket, and um, it's led to, to many other opportunities. So I, you have a whole portfolio of festivals where you program I for do, now. I do. I'm working like a West Indian. We, we always have multiple jobs. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so when we hired you at Doc NYC, we gave you the portfolio of documentary shorts. Talk about how you experienced that world and what you see happening there. Well, it's been uh, it's been a really fun and uh, educational experience for me. I'll, I'll start off saying when I first knew that this was a space I thought I'd, I'd want to be in as a professional was when I would... Uh, voluntarily subject myself to the AMPIS screenings of the shorts. AMPIS, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences. That's right. They screen all the documentary shorts and as well as the live animation action. shorts and live action shorts. That's right. It's become a touring um, uh, showcase uh, that happens in, I don't know, soon after they announce the nominees. That's right. Um, and I know from our colleagues at the IFC Center, it's, it's actually, you know, one of the big highlights of their year in terms of people coming and watching. Indeed, it's become quite popular, but I was going before it was something that was available in general theaters. I somehow got the inside track to the actual AMPIS screenings for AMPIS members, even though I wasn't a member, but they would sell tickets to the general public as long as you knew about it. Um, and I would spend a weekend just immersing myself in shorts. And um, yeah, it gave me you know, a really great grounding for an eye for the types of films that you know, get attention on that level. Um, so with my work with Doc NYC, it's been really wonderful focusing in the nonfiction space, uh, particularly because this has 
been a platform for filmmakers to really um, forge a career making shorts. You're you're seeing many more platforms like Opdocs and uh, Vimeo and The Atlantic, different different platforms who are looking to showcase shorts and also increasingly looking to help produce them. I mean, this is notable because I would say 10 years ago, and maybe even more recently, the main reason to make a short documentary was to have a calling card uh, to move on and uh, make features. Uh, It was something you do in film school with probably no hope of ever making your money back on it. That's right. Uh, now that's changed. There's, um, it's not a great money maker, but the, there's chance to get compensated for it. With the kind of platforms that you talked about. Amazon, Netflix. I mean, all of the uh, distributors that we have um, being showcased this year in, in our programming. Uh, it's it's really exciting. What's also great is that you're seeing like auteurs, if you will, develop in the space uh, where people are looking for you know, filmmakers coming out of Stanford Documentary School, for instance, or New School or SVA, um, where we know that they're producing filmmakers who have a uh, an eye for short form and will choose to do it because they like the creative expression, but also, you know, can move into the feature side of things as well. So in the years that you've been doing this at Doc NYC, any highlights for you of uh, shorts that you got to curate at Doc NYC that went on to gain a little notoriety? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one comes to mind uh, is last year's uh, The Driver is Red by Randall Christopher. Uh, it had its world premiere at Hot Springs, which is just a month before us. And I think we were the third or fourth festival to play uh, his film. And it's a brilliant animated documentary about the capture of Adolf Eichmann. Um, and the film has gone on to play over 90 festivals around the country and, and internationally and, and pretty much wins audience everywhere it plays. Um, yeah, really, really proud of Randall with that film, and it was great to be able to give it platform. So let's get into talking about this year's Doc NYC shortlist. You mentioned New York Times Opdocs. Uh, they have two films on the shortlist. The first one we can talk about is probably the most provocatively uh, titled of the 12 films. It's called My Dead Dad's Porno Tapes. Uh, Tell us about that film. Yes, uh, My Dead Dad's Porno Tapes is by uh, Charlie Terrell, uh, who takes an incredibly creative and imaginative approach to a very personal film. Uh, He uses stop motion animation, archival footage, and audio recordings coupled with the voiceover talents of David Wayne to weave a really beautiful story. He describes a distant relationship that he had with his dad, who he loved very much, but didn't always understand. And after his father's passing, Charlie decides to learn more about his dad through a kind of archaeological dig of his belongings, uh, unpacking memories along the way. Uh, Including his dad's collection of porno tapes. He's he's sifting through all this stuff, trying to figure out who his dad was. One thing he talks about is... His dad, who was a police officer by profession, mm-hmm. uh, was uh, a pilot uh, by passion and would always take his kids out to the airfield um, to fly some small plane. The kids kind of felt it was a drag. Yeah. Um, and uh, we've got a clip here where uh, Charlie talks about a, a realization he made uh, deep into the process of doing this excavation. 
And Charlie wasted all that time at the airfield hiding out in the car, like he wasted so much time combing through his dad's crap, clinging on to VHS porno tapes like they were part of this puzzle. But Greg was never defined by what he carried with him. He was defined by what, after multiple generations, he was finally able to let go. His loving and devoted wife, who would have happily spent the rest of her life with him. When I die, all I ask of you is that you take my ashes and mix them with dad's, but I just want us to be together. So that's from my dead dad's porno tapes. You can watch this 14-minute film online at the New York Times or see it at Doc NYC on the big screen with the filmmaker Charlie Terrell in person. Yeah, and in fact, almost all the films we're discussing will have their filmmakers attending Doc NYC. Great opportunity to, to hear from those filmmakers after you watch these films. Absolutely. So uh, there's another New York Times op docs on the short list, and it's called Earth Rise. This one really begs to be watched on the big screen. Great. The director, Emmanuel Von Lee, is documenting the Apollo 8 mission that gave human beings the first chance to see Earth from space in 1968. He interviews the three astronauts, and they give a context that might come as a surprise. There was essentially zero interest in images of Earth from space. Nobody told me to take a picture of the Earth. I didn't think about it either. NASA interest was focused on the mission. And particularly Borman was kind of anti-photography. It was just one more thing to divert the crew to actually completing the mission, which was to go around the moon and get back alive. So this film uh, is a half hour long, and it describes how the Apollo 8 astronauts ended up taking photographs that became some of the most often reproduced images in history. Uh, It's a really awe-inspiring film, and through the recollections that you hear from the crew, as well as the footage of the mission, it's almost like you're granted cockpit access to the mission. You know, you we think that we've seen a lot of films about NASA, but uh, you know, this one really stands out as fresh, was surprising to me, and totally delightful. That's exactly how I felt. I, I just seen First Man, uh, which is also quite rich in uh, you know footage from outer space, but this this felt fresh and shorter than First Man. <laughs> yes. Okay, let's move on to three films in the shortlist section from Netflix. Uh, The first and longest of these three is 40 minutes long. It's called Endgame by the San Francisco filmmakers Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman. They have a long track record directing feature-length documentaries, including Common Threads, Stories from the Quilt, and Celluloid Closet. Here's a good example of filmmakers who a few years ago might not have been making a short film because they had such a well-established career uh, doing feature films. But as we said before, we see a lot more filmmakers going back and forth between these two formats. Uh, So tell us about Endgame. So of all the selections in this year's lineup, uh, this is the one you should prep for by packing your Kleenex. Uh, it is in- incredibly emotional. It profiles sick individuals who are facing the end of their lives uh, and the medical professionals who do work to help them and their families approach a very scary time with grace 
and immense support. Uh, so one of the key characters uh, in this is a doctor named B.J. Miller. Uh, he had suffered an accident where he lost both his legs and uh, an arm. So he's a person who has known some suffering uh, in his life, but has learned to come to terms with that. He's a person of enormous empathy and like someone you just want to uh, be around. Um, and uh, here's a clip where he's talking about his mission. There's nothing inherently medical about dying. It's much larger than medicine. It's purely human. Part of the mission is to keep all of this couched in humanity. Not medical science or social science, but really a full arch of humanity. Kindness, total openness, vulnerability, exchange. I mean, these, this is, it's potent stuff. Indeed, this is potent stuff and very gracefully handled in Endgame by Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman. The second Netflix film is another serious topic from director Kim A. Snyder about school shootings. She previously made the film Newtown about the horrific mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012. In her new short, she looks at a similar massacre that took place in Dunblane, Scotland in 1996. With 18 deaths, it remains the deadliest mass shooting in Great Britain's history. The film title is Lessons from a School Shooting, Notes from Dunblane. So Kim's film shares the story of two priests, one from Scotland, whose parishioners experienced a mass shooting, and the other whose parish lost several children in the Sandy Hook tragedy. Father Basil, the Scottish priest, reaches out to Father Bob in Newtown to share how he made it through the most difficult time in his service as a priest. It struck me that these two priests forged a bond similar to that of soldiers through shared trauma. Uh, but another standout was the stark difference in each country's policy response to the parallel tragedies. Here's a clip with the Scottish priest, Father O'Sullivan, talking about what happened in his country after the shootings. They went out to London, they went out to the House of Parliament, and they did change. They did make laws, uh, which it's more difficult to have guns than it was before that. We will outlaw completely higher caliber handguns, such as those owned and used by Thomas Hamilton. The film draws a powerful contrast. While the United Kingdom passed strong gun laws after their tragedy, there has been no meaningful federal gun legislation in the United States since Newtown. But there have been over 1,600 mass shootings in the U.S. since then. The third film from Netflix is also the shortest at 11 minutes. It's called Zion, named after a young man, Zion Clark, who's no stranger to adversity. He was born without legs and given up for adoption. He moved between foster families before finally being adopted at age 16. He found support from a wrestling coach, Gilbert Donahue, in Maslin, Ohio. In wrestling, Zion's powerful upper body strength compensates for his missing legs. 
In the film, Coach Donahue describes a crucial match. Well, Jack Borman ended up holding Zion down at the end. Zion was so upset he put his head down on the mat. There was a standing ovation that was going on because of Zion. He was crying so hard he didn't even know. So I picked him up on my shoulder. And I know I'm getting emotional, but it's been eight years that I've been with Zion. And it was kind of like the one thing that he got. You know, he, he worked so hard and he thought he failed, but he was one of the biggest successes that I've ever had with Zion. Zion features a riveting profile of an athlete unlike any you've ever seen before. We see an extraordinary young man who overcame crushing odds to become a champion high school wrestler. His is a story of what it looks like when perseverance and grit meets a loving support system. I totally enjoyed watching this film. It's very short. Take a look at it on Netflix. You can see all three of those films on Netflix. Endgame, Lessons from a School Shooting, and Zion. And you can see them at Doc NYC. Yeah, come come see them at Doc NYC. So a longtime supporter of short documentaries has been HBO Documentary Films. Uh, there were years in the past when every single Oscar nominee in the short documentary category was produced by HBO Documentary Films. And most years uh, have had more than one. This year, that commitment continues. They have two films on the Doc NYC shortlist. The first is a candid look at undergoing treatment for breast cancer. Food Network television star Sandra Lee announced today she's been diagnosed with breast cancer and will undergo a double mastectomy. Lee discussed the diagnosis during an interview with breast cancer survivor Robin Roberts. Sandra Lee recently sat America. down to talk for the first time about a personal challenge in her life. It's a diagnosis that took her totally by surprise. Sandra Lee is well known as a cheerful television personality and author. She's also the de facto first lady of New York State as the partner of Governor Andrew Cuomo. In 2015, she was diagnosed with breast cancer at age 48. She chronicled her experience with a video diary. The film is called RX Early Detection, A Cancer Journey with Sandra Lee. Filmmaker Kathy Shermall Shriver captures the process of Sandra facing her fears and uncertainties. The film played at the Sundance and Tribeca festivals and is now available on HBO platforms. Sandra Lee and her executive producer Kathy Bates will present the film at Doc NYC on November 8th. The second HBO film also has a high-profile advocate in actor Jeffrey Wright. The film is called we Are Not Done Yet, about U.S. military veterans and active duty service members who participate in a workshop led by poet Seema Reza. So We Are Not Done Yet is a really powerful piece that shows military veterans trying to make their way through PTSD and other traumas through performance and spoken word. Uh, what's particularly special to see is they get to work with the actor Jeffrey Wright, who's on Westworld and was in Angels in America. And he helps to serve as a creative coach and mentor as they bring this production to stage. 
So uh, this film is going to be launched on HBO on November 8th to coincide with uh, Veterans Day. Um, And Jeffrey Wright will be at Doc NYC that day on November 8th to uh, present the New York premiere. Very much looking forward to that evening. Now we're going to turn to a film that looks at American hypocrisy around female sexuality. The backdrop is the National Football League in the 1970s when the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders started a trend of other NFL teams creating their own cheerleaders. Filmmaker Galen Summer looks at a scandal that occurred when Playboy magazine photographed some of those cheerleaders with the management's consent. One of the women who posed for the San Diego Chargettes remembers her experience. I think I attended a few more practices, starting to hear a buzz among the girls. Someone posed nude for Playboy. I'm thinking, I didn't pose nude to myself. I was just topless. Is that nude? Does that mean nude? I knew the girls who were asked to be in it, and I'm looking at each of them. Are you the one who posed nude? Never imagined I would be the center of anything. I thought somebody else was the culprit who posed nude, and there was a big hubbub about it. So Sidelined is a co-production of A&E Indie Films and Lifetime. And this film presents a unique look at the history of how women's cultural and sexual liberation was very much a piecemeal affair. Even as these women were breaking taboos around wearing revealing clothing and dancing in a fairly sexualized manner, they still found themselves victims of entrenched misogyny when their male employers were both the architects of and the executors of their professional demise. It shows just how far we've come in a fairly short while. I mean, the film also feels very timely to me as we're still fighting lots of other battles uh, around gender. So the last film we'll discuss from the short list comes from Discovery, and it has a strong environmental theme. Take Back the Harbor is by two experienced directors, Christy Jacobson and Roger Ross Williams. Roger previously won the Oscar for short documentary in 2010. He talked about that experience on Pure Nonfiction episode 13. This new film, Take Back the Harbor, looks at a New York high school that's helping to revive the city's waterways. This high school is along the same lines of the specialized high schools uh, LaGuardia and Bronx Science, um, but these students specialize in the harbor in a school that's located on Governor's Island and gives them close access to the water, which they use for their studies and their experiments. In this clip, the students share what they've learned about the oyster population. Oyster beds really were just what made the Hudson River and the East River such a hub of life. Oysters also, they filter like 50 gallons a day of water. It's a lot of water, and that's per oyster. You know how all the hot dog stands are pretty much on every corner, everywhere in New York City? It was like that with oyster stands. Everybody could not stop having oysters, and then after a while, they just, they ran out, and what are you gonna do? You can't put them back in because you ate them all. Well, there are no more oysters in New York Harbor because we've overfished, we've polluted, and we've dredged the harbor, and we just completely ruined all the natural habitats and natural reefs that were there at one point. They're gone, and there goes the harbor with it. In Take Back the Harbor, 
we watch these students participating in a project that seeks to rehab the harbor through growing the oyster population to one billion oysters. And I have to say, of, of all these films, the one that gave me the most hope was watching the young people in Take Back the Harbor. It was also educational. A lot of the films you see talking about environmental concerns sound like there's no answer. It was really nice to see in this story, wow, the harbor could actually be in better state within our lifetime. Also, for those of us who live in New York City, I think the harbor is something that we, you know, take for granted, you know, don't really think about. And it's wonderful to see these teenagers giving more thought to it than most adults do. So we've told you about several of the films in the Doc NYC shortlist for short documentaries, and you can explore the full list on the Doc NYC website, docnyc.net. Opal, that's just one section of the shorts at our festival. Give us the big picture of what happens with short documentaries overall. So when I began at the festival four seasons ago, we were approaching about 500 total submissions in the shorts category. This year, we officially broke 1,000 submissions. And I've got to give a shout out to my associate shorts programmers, Whit Davis and Megan Leonard, as there's no way I could have gotten down to nine programs and 102 shorts without their keen tastes. So you've got these nine programs. Each one has a theme to it. Uh, describe how those are organized. Well, as we go through all of the submissions, we're firstly looking for the films that stand out to us as just being strong work. There's strong themes, interesting subjects to pull you in. Um, and then as those begin to cluster into areas where you can find a thematic through line, uh, you know, that's that's how I make the final selections. Um, so, so I've got nine this year. We'll be able to talk about a portion of them. But a new thing that we're also doing as part of the Doc NYC Pro section um, is panels specifically focused on short form content. So we're going to be providing a comprehensive set of offerings, both for fans of short films and makers of them. And, or people who want to make them. Or so people who want to make them. That's part of our Doc NYC uh, Pro section. You can find out more on, on the website uh, about that. We have time to talk about three of those sections. There's one called This is America 2018. Tell us about that section. So this was a theme that emerged after we identified a cluster of strong characters that happened to be in films where uh, the cities in which they were set were also key elements of the story. Uh, I thought these films together really provided an interesting snapshot of present day America. And of course, it being 2018, there was a politically focused film namely Angela Tucker's All Skin Folk Ain't Kin Folk, which is having its world premiere at Doc NYC. Another great title. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it follows a race between two Black female candidates to become the first Black female mayor of New Orleans. But each of these women present very differently, and it's those presentations that provided a springboard for discussions around how both voters and the media engage with Black women candidates. And of course, the film is made by a Black female who herself is from New Orleans. So she provides a very interesting perspective in the storytelling. Here's a clip from All Skin Folk Ain't Kin Folk. 
They both strike different visuals. One is sharp and polished in physical appearance. One of them is like high fashion. The other is sort of, you know, folksy, regular people in physical appearance. Regular, you know, like boots on the ground, let's get this done. If you want to get things done, you've got to fight for it. Latoya Cantrell, mayor. And then one of them kind of speaks more, you know, genteel and poised and, you know, that kind of stuff. I am the only candidate who sat on the bench and looked crime in the face day in and day out for a decade. And the other sort of speaks real emphatically, almost even like in the uh, cadence of like a sermon. So I am not running to be the first of anything, but I am running to be the best mayor that we need to lead New Orleans forward. That's from All Skin Folk Ain't Kin Folk. Playing in the section, This is America 2018 at Doc NYC. The second program I'd love to highlight is the first time we are featuring a collection of all animated documentaries. It's called Drawn Together. Let me tell you a bit about one of the films in the section, Lati, That Silhouette Girl by Elizabeth Beechel and Carla Petullo. Lottie Renninger was a pioneer in animation long before Walt Disney and her 1926 feature length film, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, is the oldest surviving feature length animation. Lottie That Silhouette Girl features voiceover from Lottie herself as she describes key points in her life and art and describes life with her husband and creative partner, Carl. Here's a clip where she's talking about her first film in 1919. It was a, a, a ballet of uh, uh, just a, a dance between two people, you said. It was called The Ornament of the Loving Heart. <laughs> and I still have that little figure of there, and I've never made a better one. I haven't improved at all. Uh, my husband, he was an... Uh, art historian or whatever you call it. We had 42 years, I guess, quite, quite, a, quite a thing. I once uh, met a banker and he asked me would I do a full-length silhouette film and this was of course an enormous temptation. And so we went out into his place and he gave us a the top of uh, his uh, garage as a studio, and uh, then we went there and started on Prince Ahmed. The Adventures of Prince Ahmed is now considered pivotal in animation history, but it took this short film to bring Lottie Renninger to my attention, and I'm grateful to the filmmakers for that. Okay, we're down to our very last short section that we're going to tell you about. Our festival is called Doc NYC, so it's natural for us to have a section devoted to New York stories. That section is called The Big Apple. Opal, what can viewers expect from this section? Well, our New York City program is the only perennial theme that appears year after year, and it always provides very interesting looks at this colorful place we call home. It also gives me the creative challenge of coming up with new ways to say New York. <laughs> In this year's program, the stories include a profile of an Olympic fencer from the Bronx, a musician who helps cultivate a bluegrass scene in the city, 
and a stand-up comedian and correspondent on The Daily Show who found himself engaging in anti-prejudice activism after the election of Donald Trump. So that comedian is Asif Mandvi. Uh, here is a clip from his film, The Accidental Activist. But there's very few people who are like, I hate comedy. If you're like, I hate music and I hate comedy, then you're like definitely an outlier. I'm not an activist by nature. I'm an artist. But I think there is a time when those two things emerge and you realize I can use my art as a tool. What you'll see in The Accidental Activist is an evening where Asif brings together fellow comedians like Louis Black and other New York City leaders to fundraise in support of organizations like the ACLU. For him, something that was more political became very personal, and this film reflects that. So that's just a sampling of the 102 documentary shorts that are playing across different sections at DocNYC. You can explore the whole program at docnyc.net. And if you're in New York City, please come see us in person from November 8th to 15th. I want to thank Opal H. Bennett for joining me. And thanks to our team, series producer Sarah Modo, sound recordist Eric Spink, sound mixer Tom Micah, and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.